It is now my great privilege and high honor to be the first person to officially introduce the 46th President of the United States, Joseph R. Biden, Jr. Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer, and today we're going to talk about Joe Biden's inaugural speech. Today, we celebrate the triumph not of a candidate, but of a cause, the cause of democracy. An inaugural speech is the first impression that a president gives the nation. Sometimes there's even a memorable line or two that you'll remember past your next breakfast. And the most powerful moment, I thought, in Joe Biden's speech was something that he didn't say. We'll talk about that with somebody who was there, Jennifer Victor, professor of political science at George Mason University. Not only will she break down the speech with some really smart insights, she'll explain how tough it is to get a drink in D.C. right now with the city on lockdown and 25,000 National Guard troops everywhere. And now, here's my conversation with Jennifer Victor. Jennifer Victor, welcome to It's All Political, from your home in Virginia to mine in Oakland, California. Welcome. Terrific to be here. So uh, you were you were in the crowd today. You were uh, providing a color commentary for Al Jazeera English. Before we get uh, get into what what Joe Biden said, what what was it like there? Was it it's, uh, it's an, it was an inaugural unlike any other. Unlike any other, absolutely. And, uh, you know, you said in the crowd, and I'm not sure that's exactly right. <laughs> the, the crowd that I, I was on the rooftop of a, a building at 101 Constitution Avenue, which is basically an office building that's right there adjacent to the Capitol building that has this spectacular view of Capitol Hill. Um, and uh, this is where all the media outlets were stationed. So CNN's up there and Univision's up, like all these different media outfits were up there. Um, and I was doing some work for Al Jazeera uh, English, um, and they had a, a half of a tent um, on this uh, rooftop. So I just was, you know, among all of these media techs and anchors and so forth uh, all day. So it's not like we were, I mean, we were a crowd, I suppose, but we were also just voyeurs, like sort of looking down um, above, from above on, on all of this going on. Um, and, uh, the, the crowd, as it were, that was down below that we were watching were, you know, 25 or thousand or whatever it is, uh, national guard troops that were uh, oh, peppered man. all over the, the Capitol grounds behind the, the razor wire and the Humvees and so forth. It's it, when I got there, it was unsettling and intimidating, um, and seemed all kinds of wrong. Like inauguration is supposed to be this event about liberty and freedom and this big public sphere. Um, and it wasn't that. The last inauguration that I was at was uh, 2009, Obama's first inauguration. And before that, mm -hmm. I was at uh, George W. Bush's second in, in 2005. And um, both of those had a similar ca character of sort of revelry and celebration and this, this intense sense of community uh, in the crowd. And so you didn't have any of that today um, mm. in a way that was weird. On the other hand, I also felt really safe. You know, uh, once I got past the fact that there was all of this armory around me, I realized that that armory was there keeping me safe and keeping the white supremacist, you know, domestic terrorists away. And they were doing it very effectively. <laughs> um, and so I was actually very comfortable, I, I have to say, in, in the whole experience. I, there is there is a feeling of community there because you're you're with people of like minds. I was there four years ago uh, for for 
uh, now former President Trump's uh, inaugural, which was uh, a feeling of folks who were there. And uh, again, their community felt like outcasts. They felt like we are here together. The the nation is against us. We we're with this guy who is from outside the system, and it was a it was a different sort of feel there, um, uh, and particularly among the people I was talking to who were Californians for Trump, which is a, a particular breed of unicorn. Um, so uh, let's talk about what Joe Biden said. And, and we were talking a little bit earlier this afternoon when, before we were recording this. And the piece I read for The Chronicle and, and uh, you contributed to is uh, one of, I thought one of the most powerful moments was the silence that Joe Biden called for. He called for a moment of silence. I'd like to ask you to join me in a moment of silent prayer. Remember all those who we lost in this past year to the pandemic those 400,000 fellow Americans, moms, dads, husbands, wives, sons, daughters, friends, neighbors, and co-workers. We'll honor them for becoming the people and the nation we know we can and should be. So I ask you, let's say a silent prayer for those who've lost their lives and those left behind and for our country. That's... You told me that's that's something that you rarely hear in an inaugural. What, why is that? What what made that powerful? It was so interesting and so I thought effective and powerful in a number of ways. I mean, yeah, you you don't hear it in an inaugural, but you don't hear it ever. Like, when was the last time you heard anybody give a speech where they did something like that? Like maybe a moment of silence for something at the beginning of a speech to commemorate something. But this was like towards almost at the very end of the speech. It was an amazing moment, um, and, and a lot of things ran through my mind at once. At first, be, I didn't process what was happening. I thought I lost my audio feed or something. Like, I didn't really <laughs> follow that this is what was happening. And when I realized what it was, um, it was really profound, because here he is giving this speech about unity and bringing people together, but also trying to be very solemn and recognize the deep sense of loss that so many Americans have experienced uh, through the pandemic um, and the fear that people are experiencing as a result of the insurrection and as a, as a result of the big lie that, that Donald Trump has fed so many millions of Americans. There's a lot of fear and discomfort in the country. And by giving Americans that moment of silence to do their own little internal silent prayer, you know, people can be praying to whatever gods they pray to or, or no mm -hmm. God at all or whatever it is, yes. just their own little quiet mantra. And, uh, you know, everybody's doing it their own way but they're doing it at the same time. And so in that way, he was bringing people together. So it was this amazing individualistic and collective at the same time kind of experience that he himself led. It, it, it was almost kind of brilliantly spiritual when I'm thinking back on it. Yeah. And it was, it was a way, as you say, to have a personal experience and yet have a communal experience. And that's what we're what we're not having right now. We're having we're we're in our camps, and what and what Biden is is you know what he ran on was I'm going to reunite the soul, heal the soul of the nation, and and it was very much on brand there. It's also a, a call out to, to President Trump, uh, who's someone who never really acknowledged, is certainly not in the last couple of months, acknowledged the impact of the pandemic, the number of people killed, more than four hundred thousand dead in America uh, because of this the other night, uh, Tuesday night, Biden and Kamala Harris were at the Lincoln Memorial for a very beautiful, solemn ceremony, 400 lights around the, the reflecting pool, uh, and, and another uh, acknowledgement of that. 
again, what what is the why acknowledge all this uh, the loss? It, it's it's an unusual moment for an inaugural week festivity. It really is. And it really is a very explicit recognition of how different everything is. Um, and not only did we have uh, that really beautiful but brief ceremony uh, last night at the Lincoln Memorial um, on Tuesday evening, but then the whole uh, inaugural series of events was bookended by another solemn memorial event at Arlington National Cemetery, where mm. uh, President Biden and the other former presidents, minus President Trump, um, uh, visited the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. Um, there was just so much recognition of loss and um, mourning uh, throughout this whole inaugural experience. And not only is that sort of appropriate because that has been kind of missing, you know, President Trump did have a very, um, to some people's mind, uh, uh, sort of a denial, but it was always a very upbeat kind, even this morning on the White House lawn when he, you know, in his last hour of being president was even saying uh, something about, you're gonna see those numbers going down and we've got the vaccine. He was still cheerleading that the pandemic was going away. And just two hours later or four hours later, you had Joe Biden in his inaugural dress saying the exact opposite thing, saying it may be the case that the hardest part of the pandemic is still ahead of us. Um, and asking for people to recognize that and to do what we have to do to, to sacrifice. And so all of that recognition of the needed sacrifice and the mourning and the loss is rather a, a bleak or dark way, but it is a way for people to be united because Republicans and Democrats have all experienced hardship and loss through all of this. And so it might be a really dark way to come about it, but it actually is the thing that we all have in common right now. And it is part of the job of being president, being the, the mortar in chief to, you know, how many times do we have uh, uh, incidents national tragedies that touch us all in some way, you know, maybe not personally, but you, there, there's a, a way to be empathetic about it. And and Biden, that is, you know, second nature to him. He's had, it's been said so often, he's had so much tragedy in his, in his personal life, losing his uh, first wife and daughter, uh, losing his adult son to cancer. Uh, he he is uh, knows grief more than, uh, you know, for, for enough for three or four lifetimes. Um, is that are we? What's going to be the value of having a president who can go there? Uh, president Trump, as you alluded to, that wasn't. The, that's he's not the mourner in chief. But what what's the value of that? It's you know it's not going to something that's going to show up in the in the stock market or in anyone's uh, uh, paycheck or whatever. But but the but the having a president who can be the the mourner in chief who can sort of you know open his arms to the nation. Well, for the people who are willing to be embraced, I think it'll be wonderful. I think many people will feel like he is filling a gap that they haven't gotten. But I also think it's important to recognize that there are millions of people in this country who do not want his embrace. They do not want his uh, actions of sympathy. Um, they're not interested in his, um, you know, any of his uh, soft-hearted words. Uh, mm. They are fearful. Uh, they have been told, frankly, untrue things about what Joe Biden is going to do to them. And they they fear him. They think he's cheated his way there. Um, and, you know, to some extent, I, I do think Biden made these very tacit uh, recognitions in his speech that not everybody in America sees the same reality right now. We live our lives through wholly different lenses. To all those who did not support us, let me say this. 
Hear me out as we move forward. Take a measure of me and my heart. If you still disagree, so be it. That's democracy. That's America. The right to dissent peaceably within the guardrails of our republic is perhaps this nation's greatest strength. Yet hear me clearly. Disagreement must not lead to disunion. And I pledge this to you. I will be a president for all Americans, all Americans. Um, and that's just an enormously challenging thing for any leader to walk into. But I am incredibly heartened to be getting these little tidbits from Joe Biden that suggest that he gets that, that suggest that he knows that there are these two realities and that there are some people who may never accept him. And all he can do is keep trying and trying to earn their trust. And he, he called them out specifically when he said, uh, you know, the, the recent, recent weeks, weeks and months have taught us a painful lesson. There is truth and there are lies. Lies told for power and for profit. And each of us has a duty and a responsibility as citizens, as Americans, and especially as leaders, leaders who have pledged to honor our Constitution and protect our nation, to defend the truth and defeat the lies. He didn't call Trump out by name in this speech. That's the closest he came to doing it. And the many Republicans, the vast majority of Republican Party, who uh, who supported the president's lies, uh, starting with the leader in, uh, in in the House, the Republican leader uh, Kevin McCarthy. Is that does that do anything to to step on Biden's message of unity, or is that something that just needed to be said? Well, you know. The Republican Party is in such a pickle right now. Mm. Um, it, uh, it's hard to know exactly what direction it's going to go. Uh, there's going to be, I think, a, a fierce competition for the heart of the Republican Party going forward. Um, if Donald Trump stays true to this sort of trial balloon that he floated last night or this morning about uh, starting his own party and calling it the Patriot Party um, and tries to go through with that, you know, on the one hand, like, good luck. You know, lots of people have tried third parties yeah. in the United States. We don't have an electoral system that supports that. It's not going to work. On the other right. hand, if if Donald Trump is supporting that and you have all sorts of reformist Democrats talking about ranked choice voting and electoral college reform and other types of electoral forms, you might just be able to build a diverse coalition of Americans who are interested in in serious uh, electoral reforms um, that down the road might make a real difference in, in how people feel represented and how they vote. There is the, the potential for some opportunity there. Um, I don't expect a third party to really, really work. Um, but most, you know, Republicans like uh, McCarthy and McConnell know that. And so what they do with that and how they ultimately respond to this, you know, McConnell has already come out and started to show signs that he may really uh, be now distancing himself from the Trumpist faction of the party. Uh, mm. We'll have to see how the Senate trial actually proceeds. McCarthy actually has a harder problem in a weird way because a, a larger portion of his co conference um, is is in that Trump faction um, and supported uh, the the votes against the Electoral College. Um, so you know, there's a there's a real battle in the Republican Party, and uh, it's it's a cancerous one, and it's it's hard to see exactly how it's going to turn out. We'll have more of my conversation with Jennifer Victor after this short break. And now here's more of my conversation with Jennifer Victor about Joe Biden's inaugural speech. 
What was in this speech, other than the, the moments of empathy uh, and, and, and hopefully shared unity around the pandemic for Republicans like, um, like McCarthy, like McConnell, like others, like Liz Cheney, who is uh, in opposition to Trump over the last couple of weeks over the, the January 6th incident. Was, was there anything in this, in Biden's speech for those folks? Well, you know, beyond the theme of unity, if there's one big, you know, this inauguration speeches are not about policy, but if there's any right. sort of policy that we think might uh, naturally fall from this, it obviously has to do with COVID. Like that is the big elephant in the room that everybody has to deal with first before anything else can happen on climate or racial justice or immigration or, or the economy. Um, they're all tied together, of course, but you can't do any of it without addressing um, the pandemic. And so, you know, maybe there's room uh, in some of the words that that Biden offered and, and some of the comfort that he offered uh, and, and his sense of urgency and priority about the problem. Um, maybe there's space there for Republicans to say, I can be behind that. I know this is a problem, too, and I want to solve it. Um, not that they all have the same ideas about how to solve the problem, but just ag all ag everybody agreeing on the same problem right now is actually a pretty big deal um, and that that create some room for for some real government uh, progress on the question. So when you when we get off this the, the podcast here and you and you rejoin your family and you uh, and, and you're having a glass of wine later tonight. Oh, that's coming soon, what, man. Yeah, <laughs> you, sh you should have started drinking before the podcast. <laughs> the, uh, I, I learned the, something, by the way, not to cut you off. <laughs> there's, there's martial law in D.C. right now. I could not get a drink last night to save my life. <laughs> really? Just, oh, my just, God. Shutting down the bar. Now, this there's is, that's no restaurants open. There's no bars open. <laughs> I'm not going to like Grubhub a, 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 a cocktail. Like that's just mean to the Grubhub people. Right. And I don't even think they could like it. There's no booze in martial law. That's what I learned. Oh my goodness! This is that. This is what. This is what's killing America right now. This is yeah, we're not making America not great again. Uh, anyway, sorry. What is <laughs> that's that's better than anything we've we've heard in the podcast. So we far. didn't record that so, part, right? <laughs> we did no. We, we record everything here. What when you when you're having that glass of wine, you know, without the help of Grubhub later, um, what are you going to remember? What lines will you remember from today? Is that, I know, will there and will there be one that we remember in the two weeks from now? I mean, did, oh. you know, every everybody has one one line maybe or two lines. We, uh, you know. Uh, uh, you know, ask not what you can do for the country, blah, blah, blah. What's 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 Joe Biden's? Uh, we, is there one? We don't, we don't, you know, maybe what's his American carnage? Right, right. <laughs> Um, so the one that that's going to stay with me, and I don't know if this is going to stay with other people, but to me, it was it was quintessential Joe Biden. It was mm -hmm. so in character for him. And it, it so summed up a lot of different things that were going on. But at one point he said, don't tell me things can't change. And it was just, it was, it was like grandpa being all paternalistic, <laughs> but in that really endearing way. Here we stand looking out on the great mall where Dr. King spoke of his dream. Here we stand where 108 years ago at another inaugural, thousands of protesters tried to block brave women marching for the right to vote. And today, we mark the swearing in as the first woman in American history elected to national office, Vice President Kamala Harris. Don't tell me things can't change. And like, he's right, we have changed. And so of course we can change and we'll continue to change. But just the way that he put it, I thought was perfect.
Well, that's that's going to be his the, the tone we're going to hear over the next four years. It's going to be you know the 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 cranky but kind of, but nice uh, grandpa tone, and yep. either you're in it or you're not in it. Some people um, it will grate them the wrong way, and I'm sure it will grate me the wrong way at times. Yes, but uh, on same, that line, same. I was there for it. Same. Jennifer, uh, thank you so much for being on It's All Political. We appreciate it. And go enjoy the rest of your evening. Great to be with you. Thanks for the invitation. Okay, thanks. I'd like to thank you all for listening and hope that you and your families are safe and healthy. I'd like to thank Jennifer Victor for joining us today. I'd like to thank Taya Francesca Price for producing today's episode. And here's a shout out to our fabulous theme music. That's Cattle Call. It's written by Randy Clark and performed by Randy Clark and Crow Song. And remember, no matter whether you think silence is powerful or meaningless, it's all political. <laughs>